on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Ahoy there, welcome aboard. It's The Big Fish. This week we look at some brilliant habitat restoration work happening in Sydney Harbour and on Lake Macquarie, thanks to Ozfish Unlimited. And we also hear about the restocking work being done by the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. Great news for you when it comes to a captive breeding program for a beautiful fish only found in the Harbour, Central Coast and Lake Macquarie area. You may not have realised it's a fish because it's certainly not a horse. Seahorses have had a hard time in Sydney Harbour. Their habitats such as mangroves have been decimated and they've been hit hard from pollution from past decades. One seahorse endemic to Sydney, the White's seahorse, has been on the endangered list of threatened species. But there's hope now for Sydney seahorses. The Sydney Institute of Marine Science has been running a captive breeding program for the fish and they are a fish and weekly monitoring has shown they're surviving after being released and even reproducing. Here's Robin Williams with Project Seahorse Manager Mitch Brennan with our first cast on The Big Fish. What happened last Monday when you went down in the harbour to have a look? So I was monitoring our captive-bred seahorses that we released in July of this year, and we released 384 seahorses into Chowder Bay in Mossman. Every week up until this point, I've been out there scuba diving and monitoring these seahorses, checking how they're doing in the wild and seeing if they're surviving. This Monday, I managed to recapture 65, and this is in a standardised 90-minute dive. So really positive signs. We know that they're out there and thriving in the wild. This is now three months post-release. And most excitingly, we're starting to see significant reproduction. So on Monday, just gone, I actually managed to see... 15 of our captive bred seahorses now out in the wild that were actually pregnant. So really positive and really hopeful that this will have a positive impact on the wild population as a whole. Does this mean their little bellies were bulging and they're male bellies, aren't they? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's the males that give birth to the young. So we were able to see the 15 seahorses pregnant out in the wild through the inflation of their pouch, which indicates that they are pregnant. How small are they? The seahorses that we released were a minimum of five centimetres at the time of release. The species that we're working on, the white seahorse, grows up to 16 centimetres at their total length. Most of our seahorses that we release would probably be around eight to nine centimetres at this point in time. So you can actually see them? Yeah, you can see them. The babies, on the other hand, are very teeny tiny, so less than a centimetre when they're born. So they're a lot tougher to find. How long have they been in Sydney Harbour, these various species? quite a long time now. There's estimates of seahorses existing as they are for about 25 million years, so a long, long time. And then in that period of time, they've made their way over to Australia and settled here. So you have two species of seahorses that we commonly see, the white seahorse and also the potbelly seahorse found here. Where do they live? In seagrass or what? Yeah, so they'll use habitat. It's an absolute necessity for them. They are not very good swimmers, so they use habitat holding onto it with their prehensile tail. Typically, this would be seagrasses, soft corals, sponges. And in the harbour, we actually see them utilising swimming nets and pylons as well. Swimming nets, really? Yeah, exactly. So in Chowder Bay, for example, the swimming net was our main release point. And 
as this swimming net fouls up or gets bioaccumulation of marine fouling, it provides the seahorses with food as well. So little crustaceans will crawl on it, amphipods and copepods, but it also allows the seahorses to camouflage so they can change their colours to adapt to what the habitat is. Is there a way of putting more of these artefacts around so that you increase habitat availability for the seahorses? There is. It's one of the key focuses of our conservation efforts for the species. So we install what we call seahorse hotels. So they're an artificial habitat. Essentially, they're a one-by-one-metre metal cage, and the metal cage goes into the ocean and is placed onto sand flats where uh, the habitat has been lost or degraded, so where seagrass used to be, for example. And these seahorse hotels, similar to the swimming nets, as I just said, they'll get this biofouling, and that brings along the necessary food for the seahorses, but also enables them to camouflage or protect themselves from predators as well. What do people do around Sydney Harbour for preserving the seagrasses? Because they're not only valuable for all the sea creatures and so on, but as I've said about 17 or is it 25 times on the science show, they really absorb gigantic amounts of CO2. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're super important. And unfortunately, they've been declining for quite a long time now. So we are transitioning towards trying to preserve them and restore seagrasses. So we actually have a collaborative project with the Operation Posidonia, which is a group from UNSW, where we are co-restoring seahorses and their endangered habitat. Last week, actually, we installed 20 new seahorse hotels, some of these alongside existing Posidonia australis patches and some of these alongside bare sand where we're going to restore the Posidonia and hoping that we can combine these two approaches and restore both the habitat and the seahorse at the same time. When you see other seahorses or even sea dragons, do you note them as well or do you restrict yourself to the white ones? No, we will note them definitely. So the sea dragons and our species of seahorse don't overlap in terms of their environment too much. The sea dragons, particularly around Sydney, have found it a relatively deeper environment. They utilise different habitat. So sea dragons are typically below 10, 11 metres. But the seahorses that I'm looking at, whilst they're found up to 18 metres of depth, Typically, they're in the shallower environments at up to 10 metres, so not too much overlap. But yeah, we're definitely monitoring sea nathids, which is the family name for seahorses, sea dragons and pipefish. We're monitoring them throughout the harbour as well. So on my surveys where I'm counting the seahorses that I see, particularly the captive red ones, I'm also recording the adult seahorses that I see, so the wild seahorses, but then also noting the pipefish as well. Aren't we lucky having these species just down the road? It's really, really incredible. They're so unique, especially in the marine environment. They're actually a group of fish. Most people overlook that, that seahorses and sea dragons are fish. They're just highly adapted and have these highly modified bodies. But we're super fortunate to be able to see them. So sea dragons, there's three species and all of them are endemic to Australia. And then the white seahorse, the species of seahorse I primarily work on, is also endemic to Australia. So only found here. And we have other seahorses, pipefish that are all found here and we're able to go out and see in the harbour. Some people wonder why some seahorses, for instance the white ones, are not great swimmers. And the thing is that for the first couple of million years you're around, you're in a fairly gentle seagrass area and you don't need to swim big distances. You need to cling on and stay stable. Yeah, exactly. So they've adapted and found that ecological niche that they can survive in. So these seagrasses and sponges and soft corals that have existed for millions of years as well, and the seahorses were able to utilise them and survive as best as they can. 
it's only in the last, you know, 100, 200 years since we've been here and really impacting the environment that seahorses have begun to struggle as well. Mitchell Brennan there, manager of Project Seahorse, with our science reporter Robin Williams. And great news for a species on the brink, the White's Seahorse, saved, we hope, just in time. Great work there from everyone at SIMS, the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. And a lot of good habitat work being done. It was really interesting how they use the, the swimming nets, all of that meshy stuff uh, to cling on to. And the marine growth that grows there gives them that little bit of habitat. Well, the crew at Ozfish Unlimited, who know that habitat makes fish happen, and of course seahorses are fish, as we learnt in that uh, particular package. Lucas Cass is Ozfish Unlimited Senior Project Officer, restoring habitat for seahorses and all of the other critters that call that sort of place home. Good morning, Lucas. Good morning, Scott. We caught you at the Wanji boat ramp, just about ready to launch to get out and create more of this fabulous habitat, as you've been doing in Sydney Harbour as well. It's a really great initiative, and the seahorses love it, don't they? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Now, after hearing a little bit about more fin stars, I think um, the structures that we're putting in while they're not targeting seahorses, I feel like, um, yeah, they might potentially use those shelters as well, which would be really cool, especially um, uh, in some of the locations we've scouted out in Lake Macquarie. I've heard there is um, some populations there, so that would be really cool if they also jump on board the fish habitat units and make them home. Well, the big problem is that we're, we're too clean these days. We're too orderly. Sydney Harbour used to have beautiful old ramshackle jetties, you know, one plank missing and two planks gone and you'd, mm-hmm. you'd hop your way and same with where I grew up at, at Lake Macquarie we had an area down the back Cook's Jetty and a whole swag of old ramshackle boat sheds painted all different colours you know there'd be red ones and grey ones and pink ones and blue ones and ones where the paint had all fallen off I guess what, what was ever in the tin at the time and they'd have old railway <laughs> lines running from inside the boat sheds down into the water where they'd launched the the uh, heavy old clinker-built putt-putt boats, and uh, they had these ramshackle jetties, and they were made of anything and everything, any old timber, Mm -hmm. uh, giant planks and uh, all sorts of stuff. And I I can remember countless, countless days in summer uh, lying on the end of Cook's jetty and uh, looking down at all the growth around the pylons. They'd get old 44-gallon drums and fill them with concrete, get old pieces of telegraph poles and ram them into the bottom, and uh, build these ramshackle jetties on. And they, these jetties were everywhere. And now they're all orderly and, and well-kept, and they put PVC piping over the pylon so there's no marine yeah. growth. And really, they've taken away tonnes of habitat in Sydney and uh, Lake Macquarie and Brisbane Water, where these beautiful seahorses live. But you're putting that growth back in at the jetties, aren't you? Yeah, that's the idea. So... um that's it. We're, we're pimping these jetties. That's the name of this project, Pimp My Jetty. Um, and, yeah, we've done the work over in WA, but now it's coming to Sydney and to Lake Macquarie. Um, but, yeah, as like you said, I've had some conversations with a lot of jetty or pontoon owners uh, over the last couple of months, and they do say, you know, oh, I've just had an upgrade, or um, and they see that change from the new designs that have a lot less of that, um, like you said, it's wrapped in PVC and whatnot. Um, and with these structures that we're going to be putting in, that's the idea. We're sort of putting in a bit of that natural material back in the water. So it's, we're using natural fibre rope and hardwood timber. Um, and with that, we sort of construct them to be a bit like a 3D lattice or ladder type thing. 
um, and we plonked a couple of those under each jetty, um, and that's just a bit of extra habitat. It's got these structures have lots of surface area, so there's lots of opportunities for um, for all types of marine marine communities to grow on it. That means food for our fish, but um, we've also tried to make these structures so. Like you said, you know, going back to the days of old when there was a bit more complexity on these jetties, these are all, um, they got lots of internal cavities, you know, in all different shapes, and that means shelter from the wind, from the current, not the wind, from the current, um, and all these different little microclimates, um, which, which all those juvenile fish really love. I can remember lying for, for hours on the end with my brother, you know, we'd fish, put a little hand line down and catch fish and but we'd lie and look into the water. It was like one of those magic eye puzzles amongst all the different types of seaweed and soft sponges and all the rest of it. <laughs> you eventually you'd see the little seahorses in amongst all of that growth. You'd see the crabs, you'd see the juvenile fish, you'd see the bigger fish long, lurking, and they'd particularly come in at night. You know, these, these structures um, were absolute fish magnets and, and habitat. And it's a great way to restore habitat, isn't it? It's a great way to bring back lots of marine growth and lots of different types of weed and different types of animals that uh, yep. call call this sort of structure home. I mean, it's a very clever thing to do, and it's totally non-invasive, isn't it? Everything you put in there is organic and natural, and and uh, the fish and seahorses yep. love it. Yeah, that's it. No, that's the idea. Keep it all natural. Um, it's super cheap to build these things and we get the community to actually build them so that means it's even cheaper, a bit of free labour um, but yes, we hold these community working bees, people come down uh, the last one I had, we had three generations of you know volunteers they're actually helping out, which is really cool then people have a bit of ownership, you know, they might put it at their friend's jetty or someone they know or just anywhere in the, if it's a public owned jetty, then you have a bit of ownership and you can actually um, start to see what grows on that and to see the difference from day one till, till day 100 and so on uh, it's going to be yeah fascinating and uh, yeah i definitely recommend you uh go lie down again at the end of the jetty sometime soon scott and have a look down because i think um there'll be some interesting stuff coming up i did it the other day myself down in uh wagonga inlet in the about as clear as the water gets that that little estuary there and um yeah it doesn't doesn't let you down that's for sure all the stuff you see when you really hone in on it we're speaking with Lucas Cass, Ozfish Unlimited Senior Project Officer, uh, creating habitat in Lake Macquarie uh, this weekend. That's where they are at, at Elibana and, and Wanji and all around the lake where uh, a lot of the jetties have been gentrified and a lot of the growth has gone because you can really create a, a marine garden, can't you? Uh, all sorts of things grow there. You're just giving nature a hand. You're not really seeding it. Oysters as well. The oysters come back. They're really important too for filtering the water and Sydney Harbour and Lake Macquarie and Brisbane Water and all the places that you've done this. It's a very simple, effective thing, as we heard in that report there with Robin Williams and uh, Project Seahorse Manager Mitch Brennan from uh, Sydney Institute of Marine Science. These seahorses love that that man-made structure. They're all clinging on to the the, the mesh of the swimming nets. They, they love that once a, a bit of uh, weed grows there, and they're so well camouflaged, a lot of these critters, aren't they? Oh, no doubt. No, I definitely have to call up the guys at Sims and see if we can do a little collab to make them even a bit more more seahorse friendly. Um, but yeah, and no, I haven't seen one myself. I don't know much about the white seahorse. All I know is they're not white. Um, but hopefully if we keep plonking these under jetties, um, we'll find some soon enough. Yeah, look, the ones that I used to see at Elibana were a lot smaller than white. So uh, interesting they're saying they can get up to 16 centimetres long. Uh, I think yeah, I wow. t- t- last time we had a chat I was telling you about, we were soft plasticking around the, the Posidonia beds in Brisbane water. And my son threw a bit too far in. We tried to hit the edge of the weed bed. You know, fish 
just where the, the boats are moored and the flathead lie along that, that interface between the, the mud and the uh, Posidonia beds waiting for the low tide and the fish to come off the, you know, the bait fish to come off the, the weed right beds. Idea, Scott. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Habitat makes fish happen. And he cast a bit too far and let the soft plastic go down a little bit too far. I think it was a hundred mil squidgy from memory. And he hooked the bottom and he's yanking, yanking away. He said, come on. And he's pulled up a little clump of Posidonia and attached to it is this beautiful seahorse about uh, the length of the, the, the palm of your hand. And I wish I had taken a photo of it. You know, it was just so perfect. And we slowly motored back into to the habitat and let it let it swim down back into the into the weed bed. But just goes to show where where they are. And obviously, you know, fish fish eat them too and, and everything needs that habitat. It's it's just so important to bring back a, a home for the fish. There's no home, no fish. No, couldn't have said it better myself. And yeah, that's the that's the big thing that, you know, when you're really like you're saying honing on these little environments, if you're just going over Ten knots on your boat, you don't realise actually just how much life is living in those things. You need to spend some time underwater, really staring into it to see how productive all those, all those seagrass beds, all those oyster reefs, the actual amount of productivity that they boost into their estuary is just incredible. But you wouldn't realise that. And we've lost so much of it, Scott, that people don't even know. Like most of the loss of the seagrass and our oyster reefs, our salt marsh. Um, it all happened so long ago that it's been forgotten from people's recent memory. Um, but, but the numbers are staggering. You know, about 94% of oyster reefs in Australia, um, loads of seagrass. All our rivers, you know, run brown now. Um, and, yeah, it just makes a huge difference. So that's slowly, slowly. We'll definitely, I'll definitely don't see myself working myself out of a job anytime soon because Aussies have a lot of work to do to try get community involved in actually restoring all this awesome fish habitat. Um, but as you can see, that's what our fish need if we want to have productive fisheries, good habitat. And Lucas, does it have any impact on the operation of a jetty, say if someone's mooring a boat off the end of it or fishing off it or whatever? No, the idea is, um, so we sort of try to stick within the footprint of the jetty. Um, so it's all case by case. They're all a bit different, a lot of these pontoons and jetties. But um, no, it will, we'll make sure they're, they're negatively weighted, so they're not going to wrap around your prop or anything. And we make sure, yeah, they're right under the centre. Or a lot of the time, it's actually on, if you have a floating pontoon at the end of your jetty, we'll just focus on the actual um, jetty section it's, itself that doesn't go up and down with the tide and is a bit further away from where you're actually docking your boat. Yeah, it's great. You've done the, the science on this as well, and it's wasted space underneath the jetty, isn't it? It's it's exactly where, where it is, and um, oh, it just ticks so many boxes what you're doing, the oyster reef restoration, the seagrass restoration, Operation Posidonia. Um, we, can, we can bring it back, uh, as well as Salt Marsh too. Some of the councils have done a wonderful job re-establishing Salt Marsh. If we create the right conditions and, and make sure we monitor the weed rack and all that, we can actually bring that back as well so we can make our estuaries better places. Uh, Lake Macquarie is a better fishery now than it was 50 years ago. Uh, having grown up on the shores there and talking to my dad, you know, it's it's actually true and you talk to so many old time, timers, it's getting better. Well, that's it, like you're saying. You know, a lot of the conditions have come back now because in the past, you know, you, you might not want to plant the seagrass or re-seed um, the oyster reefs because the conditions are still too bad and it's gonna. that's why they sort of, a lot of them disappeared in the first place. Um, but now that we have cleaned up our catchments uh, a bit more in the right direction, there's less pollution uh, runoff going into our waterways. It means we actually, now is the time to really start recreating these reefs and seagrass meadows. 
Well, I'll let you go. I know you're waiting there at the boat ramp. <laughs> That's it, mate. The sooner I the sooner I install these uh, these structures, the sooner this, I get this jetty pimp, the uh, sooner I can wear the line. So please <laughs> let me go. <laughs> I'll let you go, Luke. It's great to, to talk to you again on the big fish. And if people see you hanging around jetties in Lake Macquarie now, they know what you're doing this morning. That's it. That's it. I'm the guy in the blue shirt that says make fish habitat crew. So uh, keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tight lines, mate. We'll catch you next time on the big fish. Tight lines. See you, Scott. Have a good one. See you then, Lucas Cass. There, uh, part of the pimp my jetty project creating habitat for fish and all those other wonderful creatures like the the seahorses in in lake macquarie they're doing it in sydney harbour as well and if you've got a jetty and you want it pimped they'll do it for free just give them a call at ozfish unlimited they've got a great presence online you can contact them there just type in ozfish that's o-z-f-i-s-h one word ozfish unlimited and uh, they'll help you out creating habitat in your backyard if you're lucky enough to live on the water. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Baby, what you doing around here? I said fish caught last year. You better do up with this. You and the wrong place to catch a fish. Go ahead, go out your line. You won't catch a fish this time. These are busted seeds. You're in the wrong make to get your fish. Ah, but you sure look pretty. Yes, and you dress so nice. But my papa always told me, never bite the same lure twice. Go ahead, get on your way. You won't catch a fish today. Please, I must insist you're in a wrong place. Same fly twice. Go ahead, get on your way. I'm hoping to catch me someday. Please, I must insist you're in the wrong place to catch a fish. You're in the wrong lane. You're in the wrong river. You're in the wrong lane to catch a fish. Coming up on The Big Fish, Stinker rattles the pill bottle and the results are in from the big kids fishing day at Gundaman on the Hawkesbury. They caught and released mostly 123 and a half fish. What a story. Well now take down your fishing pole and meet me at the fishing hole. We may not get a bite all day, but don't you rush away. 
What a great place to rest your bones And mighty fine for skipping stones You'll feel fresh as a lemonade Setting in the shade Whether it's hot Whether it's cool Oh, what a spot for whistling like a fool What a fine day to take a stroll And wander by the fishing hole I can't think of a better way To pass the time of day We'll have no need to call the road When we get to the fishing hole There'll be you, me, and old dog Trey To doodle time away If we don't hook a perch or bass We'll cool our toes in dewy grass Or else pull up a weed to chaw And maybe set and jaw Hanging around Taking our ease Watching that hound Us scratching at his flea Come on, take down your fishing pole And meet me at the fishing hole I can't think of a better way To pass the time of day This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips Some hot advice for your fishing trip Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. Hey, good day, Scott. Hey, front page of the, the local paper last week after the book launch. That was pretty good. Oh, big news around Port Stephens. Yes, lovely. Look, everybody's embraced uh, the whole idea of, of these kids' books, and, and it's great to have you come along and, and meet the locals and, Gee, they're an enthusiastic bunch, aren't they? Ah, oh, Fingal Bay sounded like the, the red carpet at the Oscars in Hollywood. <laughs> that was going yeah. off, wasn't it? A lot of, yeah. lot of. Um, I, I do like it though. You didn't have to dress up too much. You, I had my best thongs on, so uh, you had your best Hawaiian shirt, so that was yeah. good. That's all right. Well, uh, what we have done here in Fingal Bay, we're only a very small community, um, and really, when I arrived here, my wife and I arrived here, in 1974, so next year, uh, we have been residents of this little tiny community for 50 years. And I'm not going anywhere either. This is this will do me. But it was socially a very cold hamlet, really. Uh, and no one to talk to. Everyone, uh, I taught at the local school and all the young school teachers lived in Newcastle. So come Friday afternoon... There was no one to even have a beer with. And, of course, the weekend was uh, just for the sort of holiday makers or weekend warriors who really don't want to speak to the locals. Um, and I can understand that. They want to spend time with their family. So really, socially, it wasn't a good place to live. But of the last 10 or 15 years, there's been an influx of retirees um, and they've all got a story to tell. And really... It's made the community so... It's given it a heartbeat. And so we get together at 5 o'clock every Thursday and we go down to the local uh, Sellers Cafe and we get together and the banter and the, the discussion, it's all fun. We never get serious about anything and it's just, and they bring the kids along and the dogs and everything. 
it's just a great um, social experience and a far cry from what it used to be. What a roll-up at the sports club, too. It was lovely to see Carl from Penrith and, and people from all over the, the local area coming down from the, the Valley and, and Newcastle and Lake Macquarie and all around Port Stephens. And little Banjo, a bright young fellow, they're doing something right at Soldiers Point School. He's reading very well. Yes. Oh, yeah, when I heard him read, like I never knew much about him, to tell you the truth, but he's a very impressive young fellow. And that's great, you know, and to see they're out and about. That's the main aim of the exercise, is to get kids out of their bedroom and... and uh, out onto the, the great uh, outdoors. That's, that's the aim of the exercise. But And talking about the great outdoors, oh, gee. Well, you know, I never seem to learn. I tell everybody what to do, and then I go and do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> what have you done? Have you been out on the water this week? Yeah, I've been out a couple of times. I, I've become a real... I've always searched for the best bait for snapper. I've tried, oh, I reckon, just about everything available. Everyone starts off with pilchards and squid and squid heads, and then you, and then you look for bonito and tuna. Um, people can use tailor, surface fish, uh, mullet. Yeah, you'll catch snapper on all those things. Um, then I graduated to big king prawns, and I used those for ages out of the supermarket, and they were great bait, and I was doing pretty well, or I thought I was doing pretty well. And then a story that was told to me years and years ago by the greatest fisherman I ever met, an old bloke called Billy Croft, who's since passed on. But he said to me, Stinker, he said, you know, the best bait for snapper everyone throws away. And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? And he said, have you ever used yellowtail heads for bait? And I said, no, no, no. I said, oh, I don't think it rates as a bait. He said, well, you don't know what you're doing. He said, oh, I'm telling you now that um, heads of yellowtail are fantastic bait. So, and there's even one better in my opinion, and that's the slimy mackerel. Oh, hang on. Anyway, so I was out there one day and I basically used up all the bait I had, but there laying in the bottom of the bucket was this miserable Oh, I'd thought it three or four times. Yellowtail head. It was sort of looking at me in a strange way, as only a yellowtail head can, with those sunken eyes. And, <laughs> oh, dear. You know, it wasn't in good shape. But I was desperate. So I hooked it through the nose and tossed it out. And I hooked a, a five-kilo snapper. And I thought, wow, you know, there's something to be said about this. And so... I went and caught a couple of yellowtail, which isn't hard to do, and then I cut the head off, and then I cut the shoulder, another sort of inch, inch or an bit of inch and a quarter, I suppose, and then again another shoulder cut, two lots, and so that gives you a head plus two, two shoulders, three baits per yellowtail. So I started to use the shoulder, the first behind the yellowtail's ear, and that has been absolutely changed my whole attitude to snapper fishing. I reckon that's a, a fantastic bait. It's not the best because I reckon slimy mackerel is the best, but it's the best that I can access easily. Are you using a fillet of slimy or are you using the head as well? Well, you can use anything you like with a slimy mackerel. I mean, slimy mackerel is just... The trouble with slimy mackerel, you can't really freeze them. And I reckon it loses the traction if you salt it. So the best way to 
to use it is, of course, if you can catch them and use them fresh. Uh, that's the best way. They still work any other way you present them. They still work. But the yellowtail cube, the first shoulder, shoulder cut from the ear back, oh, gee. and I'm using 7-0 hook, 20-pound line, no lead at all. No, no lead. And the mate of mine, he's two doors down. He uses exactly the same. Him and I have come to the same conclusion. And he tends to fillet his yellowtail. Um, he gets, he goes a bit further afield. I think he's got a, a 80 or 90 horsepower motor where mine's a nine. So he gets a little bit further and faster than I do. But And he seems to catch more slimies than I do too. But And he gets some really, really... Between the two of us, we're getting some fantastic snapper. Uh, we're speaking with John Stinker. Clark, it's the big fish. And John, the head, uh, you look at a snapper's uh, dentistry, if you like, you look at its its business end, and they've got those huge crushing jaws. Maybe they like something with a bit of crunch to it rather than the real soft fillets from uh, a slimy or, or particularly from a, a yellowtail. Well, there's something else that I need to throw in the mix too. I've cleaned these big snapper up to, well, between five and eight kilos. No, between three and eight kilo we normally get our fish. And I don't take many. He takes a couple because he's got a bigger family than me. But uh, what I found in one particular snapper was he was chock-a-block full of crabs, like rock crabs. You can get a black crab, a grey crab or a red crab. And they all hang around the rocks and you can catch them if you're quick enough at low tide. And grab them before they grab you. That's the only advice I'll give you about catching crabs. And keep keep one eye on the sea, and then the other one you rub you rub your fingers through the crevices or down into the potholes. And if uh, and hopefully uh, one of those blue ring octopus doesn't get you, yeah, doesn't get you. Yeah, I'm always got them in the back of my mind. But if you can catch a few crabs, I've never done this by the way, but I reckon I'm going to do it soon. Um, I reckon it'll work. And really, you could cut the crab in half and then put him on, hook, just hook your 7-0 through the half crab and hook it out. You can put the full crab on if you will, depending on the size of crab, of course, and then toss it out and let it slowly, slowly sink. Well, it's got to work. It's got to work. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to have a crack at that. But anyway, so I went out. I'd used the bait. I caught the bait. So I went out a couple of days later. And the southerly was blowing. I saw, I think, what day was it? Maybe Wednesday, I'm thinking. I'm not too sure. I actually can't remember what day it is these days, unless I buy the newspaper, then I know. But anyway, <laughs> I, I I went out there and the, the southerly was blowing, but the conditions weren't right. There was no swell that was – the swell was wrong. The wind was right. Uh, there was a run-in tide. I like to fish a change in tide, but I – I didn't do that. So I did a lot, a lot of things that I I tell people not to do. Anyway, I'm out there. I toss out the unweighted bait. It's there for five seconds and off it goes. And, of course, up jumps another great salmon. This has happened to me the previous time. I mean, these are XL salmon and they put up a hell of a uh, blue. I mean, they, they take a lot of and, but they waste good snapper time. You want to fish them for snapper, you don't want to spend all your time catching salmon. So anyway, I kept a couple, put them in the 
esky with a ice flurry and toss them in there. And then hopefully, I, I actually moved a little bit to try and get away from them. Uh, I ended up with two, two snapper, but oh, look, but nothing over two kilo. They were reasonably small fish, but that's enough to feed um, my little family, but there's more coming. So I've got to go and catch more fish. But then what am I going to do with these salmon? So I'm on the way home, and I go past my mate's place. He lives... This is not the fishing, mate. This is another bloke. He'd like to be a fisherman, but never sort of gets around to it. But then I, I give a toot the horn, and then out he comes, and I hoist the salmon up onto his backyard. <laughs> and they bounce around on the grass for a while, and down he comes, and <laughs> he grabs the salmon. And then I've got a fridge outside in, in my um, shed. I've got a, a men's shed sort of a thing that everybody's welcome. You don't have to be a man. And anyway, it's got a fridge in it. So he said, righto, he said, check your fridge tomorrow. So I open up the fridge, and there's half a dozen Thai fish cakes. Oh, so I'm tossing the salmon on the lawn, and in return, in my fridge, I'm getting Thai fish cakes. How good is that? It's <laughs> a great exchange, isn't it? And how good are they? Are they, they better oh. than yours? Are they better than your ones? Oh, yeah, a lot better than mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, mine are Aussie fish cakes, you know, with a potato and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, they're good, but it's nice to have a bit of a change. And, oh, as an entree to a, to a seafood meal of, of crumbed snapper on a bed of fried rice and prawns, I mean, you know, we're pretty lucky, aren't we, really? Stinker, would you stop it? I haven't had breakfast yet. That sounds terrific. I love Thai fish cakes. It's a great way to... Uh, treat a, a fish that's in abundance too. The, the salmon are a great sport. They really fight and they're, they're wonderful to eat that way. We're speaking with John Stinker. Clark and, and Stinker, we met some great fishos at your book launch uh, last week. And if people go back through the uh, podcast, they can listen to that. I was really impressed with the, the knowledge of some of these fishos. Carl from Penrith does so much fishing and, and so many different methods and techniques and I think that's great because you can make fishing anything you want it to be. And if you embrace soft plastic fishing and, and lure fishing and trolling and deep drop fishing and live bait fishing, fly fishing, and all the different types of fishing, then it's, it's a passion that can absorb your whole life. But, and you can take it wherever you want to take it. But in your case, rather than broadening the horizons, you're slowly bringing it down smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, well, it all goes back to this old friend of mine, Billy Croft. He said, the more I learn about fishing and the more I know, the less fish I need to catch. And I've always, when he first said that, I, it took me a while to sort of comprehend that. But it's so true. It is so true. Um, the days of really grabbing your bag limit or or go, you know, using up all your bait until your bait's finished, they've got long gone. And so I just go out there, I get enough uh, for the family, and I'm happy with that, and then I quit fishing. But it's interesting to know that a, a young bloke like uh, Banjo Slade, the boy that the book was written about, you can't get any happier than that. And he had a, a line with a hook with a prawn on the end of it. He caught a thumping great brim took it off and threw it back in the ocean. Now, that's about as basic as fishing can get, but you can't get any happier 
<laughs> no, no, but I, I love the, the way that, you know, people have tackle boxes getting bigger and bigger. Yours is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You've gone from a big pill bottle to a tiny pill bottle. <laughs> I have. My, <laughs> that's right. Actually, it made the paper. My pill bottle was in the newspaper because I, I've said, I wrote an article on what's necessary in a tackle box. I mean, what, you know. I've gone fishing with people who have tackle boxes that you can't jump over it. You could not, if with a good run-up, you couldn't jump over it. And it's got so much stuff in it, and you'd need to be an Olympic weightlifter to get it off the ground. And then you open it up, and it's got everything in there that you don't need. <laughs> Look, I think also you can have lots of tackle, but you've really got to be disciplined in what you're going to target? Well, personally, what now, of course, I target, I target snapper. That's what I fish for because I enjoy, I enjoy the wrestle. I think they're the most beautiful fish. They perform magnificently in the kitchen and really, so that's where my focus is, catching snapper. And I've got a great spot. I know when they're going to be and uh, there and I know where they'll be. So I've got it. Well, it's taken me a lifetime, <laughs> but I've got it all worked out. So, um, but what I put, you've got to have one thing. You've got to have a shirt. You've got to wear a shirt with a pocket. Now, in that pocket, you put your pill bottle. Now, I've just got a new pill bottle because my old pill bottle finally gave up <laughs> after 20 years of the same pill bottle. But now I've got a new pill bottle, which is smaller than the one I had before, and it fits neatly in my left-hand uh, top pocket in my T-shirt, and uh, my shirt. And then in that pill bottle, I've got, I think, four or five tiny pea sinkers, which I haven't used. I've got to the stage now where I don't use any sinker at all, so I don't even know why I've got them in there. But other than that, I've got, I think, about six six O's and about six or seven seven O's hooks. So what's that? A dozen hooks. I've got a dozen hooks. I've got about um, five or six swivels that I only use on the mono line. I've got one rod I use, which is mono, and the other one is braid. Um, so in the braid line, I don't need swivels. So that's it. That's the whole story over and done. Folks, you want to see him te- you know, making sure he's got enough tackle for the trip. He reaches into the pocket and he shakes it. And if it doesn't rattle, he, yeah. he says, I've got to get some more hooks. You, 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 t- you top it up if it doesn't rattle. That's but, right. Yeah, and that's really all I need. That's all I need. And you know what I might use? Oh, if the tailor come on, they give me a hard time and I might lose two or three hooks. If I hook the bottom, I rarely, rarely hook the bottom. And so... Uh, I'd probably use lose one or two hooks that way. But, I mean, of the dozen hooks that I take fishing, I'm going to come home with eight, eight to ten hooks. You know? And then I'm looking, and here's someone else with, with the biggest tackle box you've ever seen. I mean, it's quite magnificent. It, it's as, like, as big as a granny flat. <laughs> And it's got everything. They've got sort of of cantilevered shelves and they open out and there's different layers. Oh, (laughs) it really is a work of art. It's like some sort of a dried arrangement. And it's really 
So I'm thinking, gee, you know, the thing you could just about build a table with what's inside it. Oh, no. But then they say, oh, what about if this happens? Or what about if that happens? You know, well, what about if it happens? I mean, you're only out there to catch a, a few snapper and get into it and enjoy it and, you know, have a beautiful meal and go home. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a, but like you say, fishing is a different thing to different people. And some are totally and completely consumed by fishing. To meet someone like that, it's a delight because they're so engrossed and consumed by by fishing. It's not not me, not me. I, I mean, I I love fishing. I really do, and I've loved fishing all my life. But I'm not consumed by it. Um, it's like golfers. Some golfers dream about their little ball going into a hole. Well, that's not me. I, I did play golf at one stage, but it was more about having a few beers after the nine holes. And I was quite happy when the nine holes was over. Really. <laughs> you should have just but, gone uh, straight to the 19th. <laughs> that's what I should have done. <laughs> and it just grabs you. Um, and if you're grabbed by fishing, if you're grabbed by golf, other people were grabbed by bird watching or stamp collecting. I mean... It, no, people get so involved, and good on them. Good on them. Yeah, so a lot of things don't interest me, but we can't all be interested in the same thing, can we? No, exactly right. The only worry I ever have about you with your tackle box is that you pull it out of your pocket when you got a headache one time and accidentally swallow a, a number two size ball sinker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> good on you, stinker. All right, Scott. See you next time, mate. The Big Fish on ABC Radio. Don't forget if you've got a fishing event coming up, if you're a fishing club, a not-for-profit, and you're doing something great on the water, let us know. Uh, You can drop me a line at thebigfish at your.abc.net.au and uh, we'd love to see those fishy photos or, or plug your event. And last week on the program, we gave a bit of a plug to SU Australia's Kids Fishing Camp at Gundaman on the banks of the mighty Hawkesbury River just near Spencer there, just below Wiseman's Ferry, a beautiful stretch of river. I swear to goodness you're in Kakadu or something when you're uh, steaming through there or just uh, gently rowing through there with the giant sandstone escarpments and the caves and the beautiful bush and the, the birds and the animals. It really is a truly amazing place. Right on the doorstep of five million people, uh, Sydney, the Central Coast, Newcastle, Wollongong area. You know, it's just incredible we have this massive river, which is also the longest river. Um, that feeds into the ocean on the east coast, I do believe, as well, even though there are lots of weirs and barriers and things, but certainly no barriers to catching fish. Glenn Coombs, who told us about the event last week, the results are in, I believe. Well, that's right, Scott. It's absolutely a a joy for me to tell you a week later that we actually caught uh, 123.5 fish. Last weekend, we'll, we'll get to the point five in a minute because that photo. I hope I, it sizes up properly to go on our website because it's it's pretty pretty scary, pretty spectacular. But um, gee, there was one youngster there who caught this magnificent big estuary perch. It would have been a, a, at least forty centimetres, probably about three or four pound, four, four or five pound maybe in the old scale. Yeah, it was a great uh, look. It was a great weekend. We had five boats, um, a heap of volunteers, fifteen kids. Um, you know, we had kids that were catching their very first fish, and you could just imagine how excited they yeah. were. You know. And lots of catch and cook. 
Lots of catch and cook. So out of the 123.5, we kept 25. We had a little barbie going so they could just come straight in. They learned how to scale. They learned how to uh, to cook their fill fish it, yeah. and fill it. And, uh, and they cooked up and, uh, and ate their How ate was their it? Oh, it was beautiful. It was what did you have? What did you eat? Uh, well, I mean, there was flatties, there was brim, um, that, that we, there was the perch that we ate as well, yeah. and, and not to mention the beautiful big mud crab that we caught as well. Yeah, monster mud crab were the kids holding that. That would have been a thrill and a half. Well, it was a great thrill, and, uh, you know, they, they just had such a joy just cooking that over the fire and whatever. Mind you, the fire was a little bit of a challenge because, as you would remember, it was quite wet. Very on, wet, yeah. On, uh, on Saturday. But, but we it were, was beautiful, misty, misty on the river. That, it was, looked great. That's right, and it was, they, we were very thankful because there wasn't wind around. So even though that it was drizzly rain all day, it was kind of warm rain. Mm. And because the kids were catching fish, you know, they, they didn't really mind the rain. So uh, uh, a good friend of ours, Lee, he, he actually, when they were out fishing on Saturday morning, rigged up amongst a couple of trees a huge tarp over the fire. Uh, I know it sounds a little bit uh, bit suspect, but it was w- way up high. It just meant that it created this br- br- brilliant little environment where the kids could come back off the water, stand around the fire, get warmed up and share all of their fishing stories. They were so excited when they came back in. Yeah. Now, the fish tally was 123.5. What happened to the point five? Well, one of, the, one of our um, punters, he was reeling the fish in and, uh, and a bull shark got the, got the back half of one of them. So when he reeled it in, he only had, had half a fish, which, which was... Was, you know, added to the fish story. Can you believe the other half? They threw the other half back into the on the river, and an eagle came down and took the other half of the fish. Oh, this, the front end. <laughs> yeah, the front end. So That's the bull exactly shark right. got the back end, and then you threw it out, and a giant sea eagle came yes, down. Yes, absolutely. It was just a Isn't story. Isn't that of the camp. just incredible? Yeah. And we obviously also, I mean, Scripture Union, we also spent the opportunity to be able to sit around the fire, you know, open up God's Word. We got plenty of uh, plenty of material there in terms of. I hope you know, you're using the fishing references. And Absolutely, Jesus calling his first disciples, and uh, you know, come follow me. And uh, you know, it was a it was a great atmosphere to be able to, you know, not only just share the good news, but also be able to share our lives as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great to talk to you, Glenn Coombs, and and well done. And look, if anyone else is organising a fishing event like that, uh, might be a competition or a, a getaway with your club or social group or whoever you are, uh, let us know. Drop us a line to bigfish at your You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.